0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Begolke. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week. Everybody, I'm Zach Begolke. I'm here, as always, with John Mitchell. This week, we're closing up the coaching carousel, we hope, finally. <laughs> Uh, With Colorado's decision out of left field to hire Carl Durrell, the former UCLA head coach, as their new lead man. And then in our second segment, we're going to talk about the NCAA's proposed changes to the transfer rules that would make uh, transfers a one-time, no-questions-asked free transfer, no having to sit out a year. So we'll have a bunch to talk about with that because, you know, I think some things are a little bit fuzzy around that. So we'll dive a little bit into the numbers and, uh, yeah, have a grand old discussion. Before we get into football, John, uh, it's been a week since we got to talk. How are you doing out there in Alabama?
1: I'm doing well, enjoying, um, finally some dry weather. It's been raining here like crazy, so I'm trying to avoid that, but otherwise, uh, Doing really
0: well, Um, yeah. Awesome, glad to hear it. Yeah, we actually had a really nice weekend here in State College last weekend. It got up into the 50s, really nice and sunny. The dog just got out and ran and ran and ran and got, you know, exactly what she needed, exactly what we all needed. Uh, So, spring's just around the corner. We'll have plenty to talk about in the near future, but... The coaching carousel has been on our minds a lot lately. You know, the past couple of weeks, we completely blew it on who Michigan State would hire. And uh, then we talked last week about, uh, you know, Colorado and what might be happening. And we had a total... Uh, Unexpected move by the Buffaloes, I think. I don't know about you, but I was completely taken off guard by the decision to go after Carl Durrell, an old face in the pack uh, 10 days. He never made it to the Pack 12 era, but he's back and he's, uh, he's now in Boulder. What do you think about that move, John? I mean, I was stunned. I don't remember ever seeing his name in the
1: discussion for the job when you had your you know usual prognosticators coming out and throwing out lists of candidates certainly not a name that we talked about like he hasn't been a a head coach in college since 2007 um, at UCLA and to be fair he had some success with the Bruins he had a 10-win year there in 2005 uh overall finished with a winning record which you know isn't what UCLA hopes for but to be fair really since he's been gone it's not like the grass has proven to be a lot greener in LA for the Bruins either since his uh firing I thought it was interesting just you you see a lot of colleges now going for you know innovative young minds and trying to find the next kind of guy who's going to be innovative and stuff and kind of take hospital by by storm. So I was a little bit surprised to see the Buffaloes go with a, with a guy who's, you know, formerly fired Pac-10 coach, like you said, who's been, you know, an NFL assistant for a while, had one year where he was um, offensive coordinator for Vanderbilt in 2014, I believe it was in between several different stops along the professional ranks. So, Maybe he's learned a lot in all these years. I can't say that being on the Miami Dolphins coaching staff last year would inspire much confidence for me if I was a Colorado fan. Uh, But, you know, maybe that's not all the way fair. Uh, Before that, it was the Jets, which also wouldn't inspire a ton of confidence for me either. So I think the thing with it was, Zach, that I, I think Colorado really struck out on the candidates that they really sought after. Obviously, we talked about, Eric being an enemy, being that a, the guy to go after, and he, you know, withdrew his name from consideration. Then it seemed like the search was focusing on Steve Sarkisian, Alabama's offensive coordinator, and he withdrew his name from the conversation. So I guess there weren't a whole lot of realistic options left, but this just, you know, really felt underwhelming to me.
0: Yeah, you know obviously we we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but the PAC 12 is not going to get the biggest names out there because they're not you know, they're not offering five million dollar plus salaries. It you know, money talks in college football, and that's a big part of what's what's happening here. I, I think the other part of the equation, as you mentioned, is just how late this came in the whole you know, carousel process as it continues spinning around and, like, was slowing but would never come to a complete stop because it was one college coach getting poached after another down the line. And I think with Durrell, it it finally stops, you know, considering he came most recently from the NFL ranks. You're not going to see that cycle continue to go. Barring something crazy we'll be talking about soon enough, I'm sure. Uh, because that seems to be the nature of, of how these things go these days. But, yeah, you know, a guy who, five years, $18 million contract with Colorado, he's making $3.6 million on average a year. He got himself a payday. He really did. Do I think he's going to make it through the full five years of that contract? I think he'd be foolish to try to leave Boulder if he does latch on to any amount of success. And honestly, he wasn't necessarily gung-ho on leaving UCLA. So I I think, you know, you mentioned it, and we'd be remiss not to say he's 35-27 and all-time as a college head coach. He did take UCLA bowl eligible five out of five years that he coached there, including the one he got fired. Um, of course, the, you know, the big game that allowed that to happen in that wacky 2007 season was UCLA putting it on the Ducks right after Dennis Dixon got injured the previous week and fell from Heisman contention to also ran. But, I, I I won't get too much into my my lingering misery out of that, but I, I think in general it Darrell was obviously kind of weighed down by the expectations that USC had built up in in Los Angeles at that time under Pete Carroll. They were they were ridiculously good, and as we've seen with USC since, it's not like You're guaranteed success if you just click on the right guy and go. Um, It's a confluence of factors that all come together and allow a program in that city to have its heyday. And for UCLA, it, you know, with Durrell, he was able to give them that happy midpoint where once every five years or so, you might be in contention for a Pac 12 title game or. You know, before that, they were they had a shot at the Rose Bowl when he was there that year. That they went ten and two and eventually finished, I think, third in the Pac twelve. But they were ranked like sixteenth in the final polls. It was like thirteenth and sixteenth or something like that. But you know, he, he's shown what he can do, and I think he brings a a ceiling and a floor to Boulder that the floor is more important than the ceiling for a program like Colorado. At this point, they need to to guarantee themselves six, seven win seasons consistently before they really get to a point where they're, you know, once every five years. It's the same formula that's worked at Arizona in the past. It's the same formula that's worked for other Pac-12 schools in general. And I think that's... You know, no school necessarily, especially one with a national championship in the past 30 years, wants to say to themselves, that's the kind of team we are. But let's face it, since Colorado came to the Pac-12, that's the kind of team they are. You know, they had that one one season where they made it to the Pac-12 championship game and flamed out. It, it, it's one of those things where you're not going to just fall into instant success at a program like that. And if you're going to take a chance on a guy, at least they took a chance on a guy who's over 500 as a coach.
1: And it's just, I find it strange because it felt like Colorado was really striving for so much more as a program. That's why they fired Mike McIntyre a few years ago, who was what, a year and a half removed from being Pac-12 Coach of the Year and leading the Buffaloes to a ten-win season, you know, and they had fallen back to five and seven, six and six range after that. But they had that, you know, confluence of factors like you were talking about, where you've got a good recruiting class, you build them up, and once every three or four years, you're a contender, and then you're back to fighting for bowl eligibility. And if that's what they're shooting for right now, I just I don't understand like the mistake they made a few years ago, getting rid of Mike McIntyre and going with Mel Tucker and then watching him leave. And now you're stuck with, you know, Carl Durrell, who last time he was in college was at Vanderbilt trying to run the same West coast kind of system. He was running at UCLA and having no success. I think Vanderbilt averaged 17 points per game in 2014, when he was the offensive coordinator for Derek Mason and they went three and nine. And to be fair, you know, Obviously anytime you're coaching Vanderbilt, you're playing against the stack deck in the SEC because you're not gonna attract the same level of talent there that um, other programs are gonna be able to in that conference. But I just don't know. It just doesn't it felt so underwhelming to me. I just and the first thing that really popped into my head was the fact that they were shooting so high by getting rid of McIntyre that now they're going back to settle and probably hoping they can get back to that kind of level. Um, on, of success on the gridiron where they can have that once every three or four years be in contention uh, to get to the Pac-12 title game and maybe a Rose Bowl bid.
0: And, you know, I think that's the thing about Durrell is fans really want to think about that once every three to four years, right? They really, winning titles is what it's all about. I, I mean, obviously, for you at this point, winning titles—the fact that it didn't happen this season—feels odd. I'm sure for you, but I think the thing is, is as I was mentioning, the floor is what's important for Colorado. If they're if they go to a bowl game each of the next five years, that's huge for a program like that, it, especially in a competitive league like the Pac-12 South, where a slip up or two and you're at five and seven. So if you can hit that six six mark, that's huge. What I think is interesting, though, is what, what does this do for Darren Chiaverini? You know, he was the interim coach that, that was named after, uh, after Tucker left for East Lansing. But, you know, he's been huge for their recruiting in the past. And I wonder, is Darrell going to have to end up completely reinventing the wheel there in boulder and i think if the school's able to maintain some of these key parts to their staff it's gonna be a less painful transition and i think Durrell can find quicker success i think if he's having to completely rebuild his own new staff especially six years removed from his last time as an assistant in college and 13 years removed from his last head coaching experience The names, the styles, you know, everything has changed in college football, even just in the past five years. You know, I think if we'd been... We'd be talking about completely different things back then. And that's the fun of the sport. But at the same time, is that going to hang him up? And, you know, I think the big corollary is... I don't want to write him off immediately because I know both you and I were quick to do that with Herm Edwards. And the fact that he came in with even further removed from the last time he was anywhere near a college campus in a coaching capacity, it, it, it's something where it is possible to get back to that similar level in the Pac 12 South of being competitive. And Colorado needs competitiveness, and they need stability. And I think in a guy like Darrell, you're not going to see a guy who's just going and hunting for the next opportunity. You know, they had to drag him out at UCLA, even though he was still taking them to bowl games.
1: It kind of felt like to me, like you mentioned Verini being the interim coach, it kind of felt like you were getting so late in the process and options were becoming so limited. Their best choice could have been to just remove the interim tag and giving him a shot. Maybe yeah. punt the decision to next year or even the year after next. Let him have a shot because what's the worst case scenario? You, you know, go two and ten, three and nine next year and you're right back in the coaching carousel this year, but you've got a head start on it. Yeah. You know, you don't you're not giving a five year contract to somebody, you're not on the hook for a, a significant buyout if you end up terminating your coach. I don't know what the contract figures are for that, but I'm sure it's with Darrell's experience being terminated. I'm guessing he worked in a decent buyout for himself.
0: Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, we say it for all parties concerned: get paid. Getting an eighteen million dollar payday, or whatever it ends up actually coming out to you for the term, the time that Durrell is working in Boulder. In the end, I you know, he did exactly what he deserves to do in that situation. He nailed it for himself. He got himself one last chance. And, I mean, for a guy who's pretty much been a journeyman his entire career, uh, it, other than getting that one opportunity at his alma mater, it, it, it really comes down to this is his second shot. He doesn't get a as a 57-year-old who, who you know, last coached in his mid-40s, uh, at least as a head coach, you don't get a third shot in this situation. He'll be, you know, 61 by the time this contract ends over the next, you know, five seasons, or 62, I guess, maybe, by the time the actual contract ends. And good for him and the thing is is i think colorado if they find themselves happy with you know his what he brings to town it, he'll he'll stay there as long as they they let him keep coaching and i i i think there's something to be said for a program like that about loyalty from a position and as great as it is to get a striver like mel tucker for instance who was really kind of just vaulting up those ranks quickly there's something to be said for getting a guy who will maintain some stability there in town it you know it's worked for kyle whittingham at utah for instance so yeah i think
1: that's certainly what they were shooting for because when you have a coach that you only have for one year and they roll off, that's going to leave some a sour taste in your mouth on that because Tucker was that up and coming young coach who, you know, had been the defensive coordinator for a national title runner up team in Georgia, an SEC championship team. So I get that. I think it's also an interesting thing. This is maybe a topic for a different day that it took this long for um, Doral to get a second opportunity as a head coach. And I think that's, there's a larger discussion here about how often that happens for minority head coaches both in college and in the NFL and how once fired it takes them a lot longer to end up on their feet whereas there's a lot of, you know, white coaches who fail at their first head coaching gig and they, you know, land right back on their feet at a big coordinator job somewhere or at a, you know, lower division school. So I do think that's interesting because I don't think he was an abject disaster at UCLA to the point that everyone involved was like, okay, we made a huge mistake. He just didn't win at the level, like you said, that USC across town was winning to, you know, obviously make everyone in the, involved in the UCLA program envious that they wanted to be like the Trojans. So I think that's probably a different topic for a different day, but that's a another thing that really... I found it interesting because it's been so long since he had an opportunity.
0: I, I'm i glad you brought that up, especially with it being Black History Month. It's something I want to talk about quickly because think about Carl Durrell, right? He got his five years at UCLA, and this was in a time when coaches still got five years. So... It, it, it almost feels wistful thinking about that crazy season of 2007, yeah, how long ago it's it really starting to become in the rearview mirror. But that 07 season was also Lane Kiffin's first year as the head coach of the Oakland Raiders. So this was before he got his college chances. You know, from there he went to Tennessee after after he was booted out of Oakland. He did his year in Tennessee, and talking about Strivers, went and took his dream job at USC. Uh, you know, got left on the tarmac a few years later. I, I he had like three and a half years there, something like that, before Ed Orgeron took over as the interim coach in in 2013. But Lane Kiffin has had Tennessee, USC. He got his reclamation project under Saban before going to Florida Atlantic, and now he's the Ole Miss head coach getting his second SEC job. In that same time span, Darrell has bounced around position coach jobs in the NFL um, before being named the assistant head coach slash wide receivers coach for Miami last year. He did his one year as an offensive coordinator at Vanderbilt. Obviously, that's not the reclamation project that getting on the Saban train is going to do for you. Uh, You know, I I hate to say it, but Derek Mason just doesn't have that same cachet. Which is its own story, but that's, that's Vanderbilt. So... Yeah, you're absolutely right. It took this a guy who went thirty five and twenty seven in the in the college ranks thirteen years to get a second shot.
1: And Kiffin was thirty five and twenty one overall as a head coach before going to Florida Atlantic, so not that big of a difference and he had I would say more to work with going from Tennessee to USC than Durrell had at UCLA. So I think that's another fascinating point. When you kind of compare the two career paths there and that Kiffin's been talking about for every big job that's come open the last, what, five or six years his name's been involved ever since he went to Alabama as the offensive coordinator every time there was a job opening? Yeah. His name was mentioned. You, When was the last time you heard Carl Durrell's name mentioned in any kind of coaching search?
0: In a search? Uh, it- I hadn't heard it until I heard he was hired. So I think that speaks volumes right there. Well, I think that's a great place to leave off before we uh, head into our break, everybody. Um, feel free to shoot us a uh, line on Twitter if you've got something you'd like to say about Carl Durrell. Um, if you're a Ducks fan who wants to uh, wallow in the sorrows of that Dixonless game or uh, anything else really um feel free to shoot us up on on twitter but for now we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to be talking about the ncaa and how sensible their new uh policy proposal just might be around transfers stay tuned welcome back from the break everybody we uh had a great time talking about Carl Durrell's new job with the Colorado Buffaloes in our opening segment and for our second segment this week we want to talk about the NCAA and something they might potentially be doing right they recently announced that they're starting to look at the possibility listen to all those words just those sort of qualifiers roll off the tongue But they're looking at the possibility of opening up transfer policy. So basically what the NCAA is looking at is opening the doors for all student-athletes in every sport to transfer once without having to sit out a year, no questions asked, no having to qualify for a waiver. What could be wrong about this policy, John? Uh, you know,
1: it's probably the biggest step in the right direction the NCAA's had for a transfer policy, obviously, since I've you know been following the sport. It's kind of wild to see, I guess, how quickly things have kind of opened up on transfers over the last decade or so of college football. When, you know, you look back 10 years ago, or last time Carl Durrell was coaching college football, how different the – transfers policies and everything were in college football it was there was no very rarely was there a waiver that anyone would get to be able to play immediately if they transferred we didn't even have the grad transfer rule that we have now in place so going from there to getting the grad transfer rule in place and now the possibility that everyone would have a free pass essentially to transfer with impunity and not have to worry about losing a year of eligibility or sitting out for an entire season or having to hire lawyers with whatever money you're supposed to have as a student athlete to fight back with and file a case with the NCAA to get eligibility like people like Justin Fields have had to do um, in the past to gain that immediate eligibility that they craved. So this is to me, nothing but a positive. I mean, obviously I think both of us would probably wish that it was just, basically free reign all the time to transfer if you wanted to, but this is certainly a step in the right direction and a quicker step in the right direction than I probably would have anticipated. Because this is coming. they can, Coaches can fight it. Fans can complain out there if they want to. This is coming, and it's coming without, or it's coming with or without people on board because it's only a matter of time before a rule like this is in place. And it's one of those things where, you know, not to get political, but it feels like being on the wrong side of history if you're against this policy. Because I think in 20, 30, 40 years from now, we'll all look back and be like, you remember when, if you wanted to try a different school and you were a student athlete, you had to sit an entire year from playing the sport that you went to school to play? Like how crazy that's going to feel 30 years from now. I think. I think eventually it'll be even looser than this. Was certainly a step in the right direction for the NCAA.
0: You know, I, I, I think you're right about sort of that historical feel around it. it it's going to feel a lot like when we look at the former freshman eligibility rule, where you couldn't play varsity as a freshman and and travel with the team and whatnot. And that feels really archaic now, but it, it it's a past that exists for many of our parents. you know out there if not grant you know for for some of the youngest listeners it might be grandparents for me my parents definitely still remember those era so it's not that far removed and for you know generations i i don't have any kids but for those of you out there who might have kids they'll be looking at this in the future and saying what was that about i i really do believe The one thing that did hang me up about this, and I I always have to be a curmudgeon finding things wrong with things, but this basically supersedes the graduate transfer rule. And I'd really love to see this put into place for undergraduates, this new one-time full transfer allowance. Um, I'd love to see it for undergrads, and you get a second opportunity if you're going into grad school. For me, it didn't necessarily make the most sense in the field that I ended up sort of winding my way through my undergraduate career toward to stay at the school I was at in terms of the people that I could work with to really further my career. Um, it, you know going pro in something other than sports, if you will. Um, even though I talk about sport history and that's that that's the career, but you know. Uh, leave me aside there the fact is for anybody who's going into any graduate study there might be a better fit for you in terms of the faculty you're working with and if you're a serious enough student that you a finished your undergrad in time to still have eligibility to play uh, in college and you're Good enough to get accepted into a graduate program somewhere that has faculty that really works well with you. You ought to have the right to do that, you know. I because I think a lot of people. I I transferred twice as an undergrad. You guys have heard that out there before, but ultimately, I had no penalties. I could continue going and writing for the campus newspaper right away, or I could you know, get a campus job right away, or go work in the archives, do whatever. And I didn't have to sit a year or or kind of sacrifice that potential growth period for any particular reason. And without those transfers, I wouldn't have ended up at the point that I'm at right now. Uh, you know, I'm doing my my PhD right now at the place that's different where I got my master's degree from. The fact is, is a wide influence of schools can be really beneficial in the educational sense. And I think the, the only thing the NCAA is doing wrong here is eliminating that hard fought, you know, incentive to actually go out and get an education and possibly take advantage of the opportunities to get even more education that'd be my only qualm with this honestly because i think as you said it's a great first step toward even further liberalization of the rules
1: yeah i think maybe when this rule actually rolls out when they actually Finish, and you know, there's going to be some language changes in it before it actually comes to pass. Hopefully, that ends up being a thing where the graduate transfer rule is still in place, and this is in addition to that. Yeah, because restricting what someone can do after they graduate college if they still have eligibility to play a sport is absolutely ridiculous. That makes no sense at all. Yeah, so I, I hope that that ends up being the case. And the good thing with this is it removes the just ridiculous subjectivity that happens with transfer waivers because you see people get transfers who, you know, everyone to me obviously deserves the instant waiver, no matter their circumstances, but just how subjective the NCAA has been on approving said transfers. You had (laughs) Luke Ford, for instance, transferred the tight end from Georgia transferred to Illinois to be closer to his sick grandfather and hoped that his grandfather could come watch him play for the Illini last year. Was it granted that waiver? And then recently his grandfather passed away, yep. which is just the worst possible scenario for that kind of thing. And it just, it's never made any sense because theres it's never been black and white on this kind of stuff. The incident To me, it always feels like they're practically flipping a coin, like they're Javier Bardem's character in No Country for Old Men and he's deciding everyone's fate by a coin flip. You know, that's what it took me back to. I always have to throw a movie reference out there. Yeah. That's what it really feels like to me. And that was just such a sad thing to see. And I'm glad that there could be a rule in place that would remove that kind of subjectivity from it. Because there's just never been any
0: clarity on what it
1: takes to actually get granted that waiver.
0: Oh, I completely agree. And the other thing I really want to talk about around this and make sure that we... We, we reserve plenty of time because I'm sure it's going to, you know, lead to some minutes here. People have talked about this as like the death knell of college sports and this idea of the rich getting richer from the opportunity to have a transfer like this. What What is that? How, how do you think that actually is going to play out?
1: I think it's sour grapes. It's all it is. It's a it's a bunch of older statesmen standing outside and yelling at the young kids running through their yard is what it feels like to me, you know, because it's just it's people who are resistant to change people who, you know, want to have this faulty sense of amateurism and people who don't realize all it takes to be a student athlete in today's society and in today's college athletic world because like we talked about before it's a job it's a full-time job and as an employee and that's how it often feels as a collegiate athlete as an employee we can choose to quit a job and start a new job as often as we want and as and as a student if you're not an athlete you can choose to go to a different school if you want to why should that person be then punished just because they have an extracurricular activity on top of their their school. There happened to be an athlete. I don't understand why that person would be punished for that. So I, it to me, it's always been sour grapes. It's always been people, you know, whining and not wanting these kids to have the freedom that the they themselves, as coaches, in that instance, have always had to be able to move job to job to job whenever they feel like it. So yeah, I, I totally there'll be some backlash from some coaches. I think you've already seen some, I believe uh, Georgetown's head basketball coach, Patrick Ewing, the former Knicks great called it recently. The wild wild West is how it'll be. If this transfer policy ends up coming to place, but you know, I there's always people who think the worst in these situations and want to throw out scare tactics to make it seem worse than it's going to be. And, if the worst case is that it feels like college football free agency, how fun is free agency in every other sport to follow? In the NFL, in the NBA, in Major League Baseball and professional sports, free agency is some of the like most fun parts of it, is getting to see you know who's changing teams and stuff like that. So that opportunity for college, to me, is a net positive all the way.
0: Yeah, I you know, the the coach that came to mind for me, or the former coach, was Mark Richt coming out and uh, basically saying, you recruit and develop players, and when I think they're good enough, I'll poach them from your roster. Welcome to the new normal in college football. Uh, and I, I broke this down a bit in last week's Sunday morning quarterback, and I just kind of want to talk a bit about this. Two thirds of the transfers, or three quarters of the people that have been in the transfer portal the past two years, who had were rated two stars or higher from at twenty four seven sports in their composite rankings. So you know, players who are good enough to play at a Division one level, generally, there's been three hundred twenty eight of them that went into the transfer portal. Three hundred. Twenty were at Division One, uh, Division One A schools, FBS schools, so a Power Five or a Group of Five school. Out of those, two hundred forty-six were from Power Five schools. So, honestly, you're either poaching between major major teams, or you know, you're actually moving down to a group of five program or even an FCS program. These players, you can't say that the rich are getting richer because at most they're making a lateral move to another school that has just as much prestige. It's, It's Justin Fields going from Georgia to Ohio State. This isn't the rich getting richer. It's the rich passing their money back and forth between their hands. That's all it really is in this instance. And yes, it's one program getting stronger at the expense of another. But in general, what we're going to see here is not a, a, a... crazy redistribution upward in talent, but we're going to see that distribution downward. Obviously, four- and five-star players, we've only seen four total five-star players go into the transfer portal. They all were, you know, five... They were all at Power 5 schools. They all went to a different Power 5 school. It's not like... The the cream of the crop are doing anything but going from one blue blood program to another if they do move. And honestly, I mean, think of it with Jalen Hurts. He went from Alabama to Oklahoma. He wasn't going to resurrect Vanderbilt, as we talked about in our last segment. That's not the type of school that's going after this type of player. It's going to be a school like Oklahoma. Or I even think of, like, Russell Wilson going from NC State to a Wisconsin team that at the time was a Big Ten powerhouse and needed that last piece to get themselves to another Rose Bowl. So that's the type of transfers we're talking about, is a a four- or five-star player is going to be going from a Power 5 school, and they're going to either be going to another Power 5 school, which don't don't tell me that's the rich getting richer. Even if it's every single one of them going from Kansas to Oklahoma, for instance, it, it, it's teams that honestly still have much higher valuations than anything a group of 5 school is going to do. And so... Maybe it's redistribution up the top 25 in that case, but everything I've seen in the numbers from the past two years of having good transfer portal data, it just doesn't bear that out.
1: Also, the, the major Power 5 programs typically don't have a lot of roster spots to go after transfers year in and year out anyway because they're constantly signing full recruiting classes every single year because they're recruiting better than everybody else. So they don't have a ton of roster spots sitting around to poach talent from other schools because they don't have the room. Yeah, You know what I mean? They only have one or two spots every now and then, and maybe they'll grab a, a graduate transfer tight end like Alabama did this year from North Carolina or something like that. Um, and then I don't even know why anybody would be upset about a kid from a group of five program who would potentially move to a power five program anyway, because good for that kid. You know, he probably was under-recruited coming out of high school, probably worked his ass off at this group of five program, and then drew the attention of these power five blue blood programs that he probably always dreamed of playing at as a kid and then earned that opportunity to get noticed by the Oklahomas of the world, or the Oregons of the world. And good for him. That's what college sports are all about, is going in and working hard, and developing that reputation and getting noticed. And if there's a kid at the group of five level or anything like that who has the opportunity to jump from a program, you know, like a Colorado state getting to jump to a USC or something like that, then good for that kid because they worked hard and they earned that opportunity.
0: Undoubtedly. Yeah. I've never understood where in a country like the United States that really touts this idea of work ethic in a meritocracy allowing you to rise to the top. <clears throat> I've never really understood that whole concept of it in college sports it's inverted. And the narrative suddenly becomes you either play that Cinderella role where you started or you play, you know, your big man on campus role at a a huge school, you know, wherever you were coming out of high school was basically wherever you, you're locked in for the next three to five years, unless you, you know, and more likely four or five, unless you bust your ass and get to the NFL sooner. So, and in terms of this upward mobility idea, in, t- in the past two years, 31 out of 331 players have gone from the group of five to the power five. Three more have gone from the FCS to a power five school, which is just awesome. You know, like I think of Vernon Adams Jr. When he was at Eastern Washington, blowing the lid off the big sky and not really getting a ton of attention for it, even though he was leading the Eagles to you know, FCS national championship. He gets the chance to go to Oregon for his last year as a grad transfer and really starts to make more of a name for himself. Obviously he had injury issues with his throwing hand that kind of ruined that opportunity in Eugene, but he even just having that opportunity and having the off season discussion about what it meant for the ducks to get a player like that was huge for building up his reputation and setting him up for the chance to go pro. Obviously, Vernon Adams Jr. is a name that people who only follow the NFL are not really going to remember much. But when he was in college, he was a damn good player, and he proved it at the FCS level well enough that a school like Oregon, at the height of its, you know, sort of crest... As, as a national power in that Chip Kelly, Mark Helfrich era, he, he earned that opportunity. And I think that, why would we frown about that? That's one of the coolest stories I could possibly think of.
1: Well, look at two,
0: maybe the most recent, most famous story
1: of a kid coming from a smaller school to a bigger school recently was Gardner Minshew going from unknown East Carolina quarterback to household name at Washington State, playing so well at Washington State and becoming so popular in Pullman that, I mean, he's very well known at this point, very popular, um, got the opportunity to get drafted and play for the Jacksonville Jaguars, started several games for the Jaguars last year due to a Nick Foles injury. And really took the NFL by storm. Had several really impressive performances to the point that he's got a shot to be a starting NFL quarterback at this point. So, and he earned that opportunity by playing, you know, well enough and making himself enough of a commodity that a school like Washington State and a coach like Mike Leach would come calling and put him in a system that allowed him to have success and get notice, have the noticeability that he would never would have gotten at East Carolina.
0: Undoubtedly, yeah. If he remains a pirate for his final year of eligibility, Gardner Minshew is off somewhere selling insurance or going back to school to get a grad degree or an undergrad degree in something that actually works for him. It You know, he's not sitting there reading NFL playbooks and getting ready and, and conditioning himself all offseason, yada, yada, yada. It's just not happening. It, it 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 for all we talk about the possibility of you know guys getting drafted from smaller schools getting drafted from unheralded programs and the idea that scouts are always digging up those diamonds in the rough you have to show something at the college level to get noticed You know, they're not scouting just on your measurables. You have to show something. And the thing is, is that East Carolina, for as as good as Gardner Minshew was, he didn't get the opportunity to really show something, both against the level of competition he was playing versus the type of competition he gets to play at Washington State his final year and just the team success the players he's playing with the system he's in none of it fits him quite like he explodes in Pullman and once you know he comes out of the Palouse and ends up there in, in Jacksonville it 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 just some it, it's a snowball effect and now he's got his next opportunity but he got the opportunity because he got himself to a place where he could immediately transfer to a new school and be eligible to play immediately because he graduated. He got his undergrad degree. He got his bachelor's. He was all set. And I, I you know, that's as I, as I said earlier, that's the only qualm I have with this. The way the NCAA is currently framing their proposal is taking that opportunity away. Because honestly, you can have a player who's, you know, that first year, just it doesn't work out for them. And maybe they took a red shirt season already at the school and they're recognizing, I want to be closer to home. I transferred across the country to, to go take a shot with a, you know an Alabama or a Georgia or an Ohio state or whatever, but they're from the West coast and you know, they got an offer from a Washington or a Cal or, or whatever and want to come back closer to home. A player like, you know, they do their first year in school and realize, Oh, I went, I know exactly what I want to do now with my time, you know, with my education, but the school I'm at really doesn't have a good program in that holy shit, could that possibly actually be something that happens with students? It does. It does indeed. And just because they're athletes doesn't mean they're entirely divorced from thinking about those sorts of questions that plague every undergrad. And so they use up that one thing of eligibility. They bust their ass then and get their chance to transfer, but that, you know, it's off the table or whatnot. I think that's ridiculous. But... Otherwise, let that first opportunity be a free one. And I personally see no problem if a student wants to bounce from year to year, because even though a lot of these scholarships can be four and five years at a school, there's still technically, you you still have to sign a a renewal form every year, (laughs) you know as much as you can bake sort of things into the system to make it a little bit more guaranteed for you, you're, you're on a one-year contract. And if you're completely unable to fulfill up to the, to, to the expectations, there's always a risk that that can fall away from you as well.
1: Absolutely. I see, I see it as a, as a net win for college football as a whole. So, Hopefully this
0: gets passed, and
1: next time we're talking about it, we're talking about
0: that fact. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, believe me, I'd love to see more talent filter down to Cinderella opportunities. You know, we've seen it with, think about, like, Shane Buschel at SMU this past year. He He had the Mustangs on fire for a while there. We were talking about them in a way that we hadn't talked about since before their death penalty when you weren't born yet. And I was in in diapers, John. So that's true. It's very true. So yeah, those kind of opportunities, allowing these
1: kids to have these kind of chances and, and get, you know, second chances to kind of tie it back to the beginning too is great. I I can't imagine why anyone would really have an issue with it. Um, Obviously they do, but uh, I, I think this is great. I really think it's a really big step forward.
0: Well, the only reason you can have an issue with this is because of what it does to the power dynamic. And that's why you see coaches coming out against it. And that's why you see a lot of the media willing to echo it because so much of their job is about maintaining proximity to a coach who's happy enough to feed them quotes. And when that's what your job is dependent on, you're going to want to bite back. I understand the impulse. I think it's stupid because, honestly, it it can work just as well in your favor if you're a good coach who actually has players want to play for them. Forget the wins and losses part. Just if you're a good coach who has players wanting to play for them, you're going to end up winning more games than you lose because you're going to get the type of talent you need to win. And those those are the type of coaches who are going to benefit from this and be able to improve programs at the expense of tax, you know taskmasters or whatnot who have sort of lorded over a program for a while.
1: True. And this also provides, for the national media and everything too, this provides genuinely interesting off season content that people are going to want to click on and read about all off season long. So that only helps to increase page views and stuff like that during the off season. So you think that'll be on board too.
0: You can either listen to us talk about players bouncing around the country, or you can listen to us talking about a different coach moving every damn week like we have for most <laughs> of the past month. It's really your option here. Personally, I'd rather talk about the players. Those are the guys I actually watch the game for. That's that's what I actually love about this sport is... The feats that happen on the gridiron, not just outside the white lines, on the sidelines. So, but who am I, you know? I'm just a guy who babbles at you every week about college football. And uh, unless you have anything further you'd like to say about this issue, John, I think we've, we've pretty much come to our consensus on the matter. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Wednesday or whenever you're listening to this podcast. But enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy your weekends. And uh, hang in there. Football will be back again soon enough. Take it easy.